0: of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at JoinMIDI.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, a little, Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18 plus. Warning. This podcast may contain graphic descriptions of physical and sexual violence against adults, children, and animals. Prepare yourself or do not
2: Greetings, I'm your host, JR, welcoming you once again to the creaking door to Bent and Twisted, the podcast where we cuddle up near a cozy fire and tell each other true tales of weird and the wicked over wine and weed. Come on in, my co-host, Jay and Khadija are already in the parlor. Party favors for this week's episode are courtesy of Phantom Flowers, the Uncanny Cannabis, Paired with a delightful habanero-infused Zinfandel from Hellfire Vineyards. Eternity's most elegant elixirs. Make yourself right at home and buckle up, buttercups. Khadijah is about to tell us about Roselets and Fred West, a particularly twisted couple of butchers that give new meaning to the phrase family-oriented. Cheers to post-Halloween stress disorder. here, here.
1: So, okay, before I begin this story, I have a couple of preface points that I'd like to make to my fellow Americans in particular. I feel I need to mention this because there is this unspoken belief amongst some of my country members that most people from the UK are what British people would call posh, even when they clearly aren't which is insane, has some weird history behind it that we won't explore here, but it usually comes down to misunderstandings amongst English speakers, even though we're all speaking English. So some words translate differently or not at all. So I'm going to go over a few that will come up in this story, and most of you will be rolling your eyes out of your ears about how fucking basic this is. But it will be news to a few, so don't be snot balls about it, okay? Mm -hmm. So a caravan is a... What is this, an English lesson? Yeah, it
2: is. I I left school a long time. Not that long ago. I left school a little bit ago.
1: So in your your British, a caravan is a... Is it a type of car? It's a trailer. Okay. Okay. So a caravan Uh, park is a... Trailer park. Exactly. Okay. Okay. A nanny is a...
2: A person who takes care of your child. Pretty,
1: pretty, pretty basic there. It's a fucking babysitter. Yeah. So we don't need to be thinking about Mary Poppins or uh, Juliette mm-hmm. Mills or Fran Drescher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So think babysitter. Think maybe a person who surfs your couch in exchange for watching your kids. Okay. You have any idea what a bedsit is? No. Doesn't
0: I it... feel like I should know.
1: A studio apartment in America will at least have its own kitchenette space and a toilet and shower, okay? Mm-hmm. A bedsit is sort of the equivalent of an SRO. So it's kind of like a, a hostel. like. Kind of. It, kind. It's like a room. And it's a room. With a bed. Sh- with a bed. But
0: it doesn't have like basic amenities like a bathroom no. or a kitchen. No, Those you have to share that. Yeah. Right,
1: exactly. Yeah. When I went to Europe the first time, uh, we stayed in hostels throughout Italy. Taking I mean, a it bath in tubs that everybody had been in, and it helped being too young to really appreciate it. Yeah. Because yeah, like, now I'm like, hey. You know yeah. who
2: ruined any chance of sharing a lot of, uh, even to this day, with us a lot? Like.
1: Your brothers? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so you just, there you go
2: yeah, yeah they that ruined was, it for me too yeah, it's just like I brothers okay
1: yeah so that's what a bedsit is it's uh, a room furnished with a bed a desk and a chair maybe and you're sh- sharing a bathroom and kitchen with rando so most people who could afford to live anywhere else would so a good portion of the incidents in this story took place in what people over there called bedsit land at the time And this would be like a neighborhood with a disproportionate amount of these kinds of SROs, right? A
0: lot of people living kind of down and out.
1: Yeah. So when you hear about Rose and Fred, don't think about Mrs. Slocum and Captain Peacock, okay? It's more like Tammy Lee and Tommy Lee. And don't let the accents get y'all messed up. So um, one more thing, and I have to say this. Because we got to represent. So when you travel outside the United States, never request a napkin. Unless you are looking for a diaper or a Kotex pad. Because the rest of the English speaking world uh, says serviette, apparently. so. Serviette. Yeah, so represent, okay? Don't want anybody thinking you're about to wipe your mouth with a fucking diaper. So anyway, initially... That's so
2: weird, though. It, I, mean, I know because that's but... going to be the first thing you're going to ask for. Like, the moment they forget to give you some napkins, <laughs> it's, you're not going to remember, like, okay, what do I call it again? It's just going to be, can I have a napkin? Yeah, please. But, believe me, I was at the restaurant
1: asking <laughs> for Coke. Can I have a Kotex to <laughs> co- wipe my mouth with, please? <laughs> Initially, I had planned to do a write-up on just Let's But when I started looking into her husband's background, you know, just to, like, say, like, who he was and stuff like that, um, who she happened to be married to, it was uh, pretty apparent how much they had in common and how much they influenced one another. That said, I can imagine how humiliated their families were to suddenly have all their darkest family secrets thrown into the spotlight. But it is what it is. And some things, some secrets you just shouldn't have. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, Rose was born Rosemary Letts in November of 1953 in the town of Northam, Devon County, UK. Awaiting the arrival of her birth were four older siblings, a violent, paranoid, schizophrenic father with severe OCD, a timid mother suffering from depression so debilitating she was being treated with ECT up into just a few days before going into labor. Wow. Oh my God. And poverty. There was a lot right. of poverty waiting for her too. So right. yeah, she was getting fun digs there, huh? I don't know if they like now. They still say that ECT is supposed to be the safest way to treat depression in pregnant women. I say, yeah, bullshit. Mm, I'm, I'm, not, sorry. I'm not a professional, but ECT E-T sounds like crap to me.
2: Yeah, no. Is that electro electroconvulsive therapy. therapy? Yeah.
1: Just well, like... you know, they administer those therapies up to three times a week mm-hmm. until the sub uh, until the symptoms uh, subside. Yeah. So, I want to know if there's
0: actually any like clinical trials that have been run that they prove clean, that no, it they actually
1: helps. It, uh, I don't know, but like
0: it, I, I'd like to see somebody um, with who's a story shocking, approved, even if we're clinical trials, for clinical trials,
2: who's shocking pregnant ladies. Like, no, that... it's like just come on now, like. It seems like, like, oh, are those things, let me ask you this, are those, is it safe in the sense of it's not going to harm the mother during other than what it would normally do outside if she wasn't pregnant? Does it go into what the baby gets, you know, hit with, you know? (laughs)
1: I don't know how they. Can... Uh, I
2: think, yeah, I think I just, sorry, I think I just I'm dove into medical, that one. And...
0: <laughs> I'm not a medical professional at all. It just but, sounds, uh, it sounds, it's just awful. Sucks. It just seems I like mean, a it's bad just, idea it to just, electrocute you
2: don't. pregnantly. You can't it, feel sad. Heavily yeah. pregnant. You can't yeah. feel sad for a killer, criminal, murderer, whatever, but you could feel sad for the child, them. And what could have possibly some at least to some extent led them to where they ended up at you know, I mean come on you think oh there's gotta be some mental damage did, with that shit
0: do they know much
1: about her past Rose's childhood yeah well I'm telling you about it okay Okay, okay. that was her mom though, so this is her okay. coming into the world oh gotcha, so, gotcha. <clears throat> so as a child she was described as being moody and precocious meaning that she matured early physically and she was too interested in grown folk business Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she daydreamed a lot and was thought of as slow. And her nickname was Dozy Rosie. Oh, <laughs> I was I was discussing this with Jen and she was saying that she thinks that Rose is probably on the autism spectrum. You know, and there's like several things about her childhood that makes her think that. And that's an interesting perspective. As I've mentioned already, her father, Bill Letts, was a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic.
2: Great to have in the family.
1: Mm-hmm. He was actually diagnosed as a child, but he didn't disclose this to the woman that he married. Oh,
2: great. I wonder why she's depressed.
1: He was plagued by a violent temper, because, you know, who knows what kind of circus was going on inside his head. He had obsessive-compulsive disorder, which manifested itself in him as issues regarding things not being clean enough.
2: hmm
1: And he was known for inspecting his home with the white glove test kind of thing, you know, running his fingers over surfaces looking for dust to have a reason for flipping out. And you know, when you do this, you will always find something. Yeah, there's always going to
2: be something on that glove. (laughs) There's
1: always going to be some dust somewhere. So as far as he was concerned, he always had a reason to flip out. And Bill's rages were sudden and violent. The throwing people down a flight of stairs, slamming people's heads into walls kind of violent.
2: Oh, jeez.
1: Rose's mother, Daisy, seemed to have shut down years earlier, shortly after she was married. Uh, she was running on autopilot in psychic shock and could not protect her children, could not protect herself, and was clearly mentally unstable herself. Daisy was able to leave her husband by the time Rose had become a teen. However, she eventually abandoned the children to their fa- father's oh, custody. Yeah, I don't know the circumstances of this, so I'm not going to speculate, but the end result was that the violent schizophrenic ended up with the kids that were still minors in the home, which included Rose, her older sister, and two younger brothers. Uh, and perhaps there was an older brother there at first, I'm not sure. The violence didn't end with the marriage. Bill continued to subject his children to the unchallenged violence of his rages. However dozy Rosie was, she was her father's favorite. She was daddy's girl. And I do mean that in every creepy way you can imagine. Mm. And this had been going on from a very young age. He was also molesting her older sister, but their relationship was different. Rose was his favorite, so he didn't beat her. He just beat everyone else in the house. From the time she entered the world, Rose was steeped in this environment of violence and perversion. She was marinating and absorbing it in the weirdest and worst ways, internalizing it. Rose had a heightened interest in sensory stimulation and difficulty with empathy. Sex, she learned early, was transactional. It was the currency of affection. It was the price she paid to be the favorite. It was more than that because the interaction had been presented to her from the get-go as love, as part of a parent's love. That connection with her father is what made her special. It kept her safe from violence. She was bullied at school when she was a small child, but by the time she was in her earliest teens... She'd become something of a bully herself. The big sister viciously beating on and berating anyone daring to taunt her younger brothers. Classmates considered her aggressive, uh, also loud. Mm-hmm. At home, she was walking around with barely any clothes on, or sometimes she would walk around completely nude. She was in her teens by this time and allegedly fascinated by her developing body, So the entire household, including her two younger brothers, were being subjected to these kinds of assaults on the eyeballs. You know, these visual felonies Mm -hmm. of their sister walking around butt naked and stuff. From the age of 13, another thing she began doing was going into the room shared by her younger brothers at night like some kind of haint or succubus and molesting them both. Oh, my God. (laughs) It would seem that was her way of showing them affection in some really twisted way, maybe. Well, mm-hmm.
0: how she learned to do affection.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: I'm telling you, it might have also been a little bit of elect- electric shock therapy as well.
1: None of-, of us get to choose the family or the situation into which we're born. Children who grew up in abusive households long to get out of those circumstances and get themselves to a place where they'll be safe or get themselves to a time when they'll be able to protect themselves. But that would be a sign of mental health, stability, and wellness. And for Rose, those things are alien concepts. Unfamiliar things aren't comfortable. And Rose was already as comfortable as disease in the open wound of her home life. When she was 15 years old, Rose met her Prince Charming while waiting on a bus. She didn't know he was a prince yet. For one thing, he was scraggly. He was rumpled and disheveled. like Like he dressed in the dark or had slept in his clothes or both. She noticed his teeth were fuzzy. She described him as ganky green. Ew, what the fuck? She <laughs> thought he was a transient. He asked her out and she refused. She did think he had a cute face, though.
2: All all superseded. that. The face is all superseded by everything else. <laughs> there is no cute face on that. I'm sorry. She saw him again. <laughs> with his, t- <laughs> at him, his fuzzy little
1: teeth. Look at him with his fuzzy little teeth. His hairy teeth. <laughs> Like Mrs. Doyle. Look at him with his hairy hands. (laughs) She saw him again at the same bus stop. He flattered her and asked her out again. Again, she refused, but he was persistent, like a foul odor. And there she was at the bus stop again. And this time, she permitted (laughs) him to walk her home. Rose was never a great beauty. She was average at best at the right angles, maybe cute from time to time. Despite her proclivities, she would frequently be described as dumpy or matronly. Dang. (laughs) I've been telling you, the word dumpy came up a lot. Oh, wow. She wasn't exactly having to beat the boys off with a stick to keep them away from her. And just as well, since she'd been trained from a young age, to develop a preference for older men. And her would-be suitor more than 10 years her senior, tick that box. If they're physically, it's one thing for them to feel fuzzy. It's another thing for them to visually look fuzzy. He must have
2: have brushed his teeth on that last day and then it was like in the clear for her.
1: Well, you know. Well, well, he did brush his teeth. Maybe he did, but uh, you know. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. (laughs) Rose was young and youth has its own allure. It represents vulnerability and malleability. And if you're a teen girl, if you're a teen, if you're a teen, there's always going to be some horn dog creeper grown up lurking around you no matter what fresh hell you're looking like. Trust. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> All you have to be is young. Well, so a few days after she... I remember. <laughs> a few <laughs> days after she allowed him to escort her home, a woman entered the bakery where Rose was working and presented her with a gift. She told Rose that she had been asked to do so by a man who was waiting outside. And the man was, of course, her Prince Charming, who then entered the premises and asked Rose on a date. And she did not refuse him this third time. Oh, God. Well, what Rose did not know at first, but would come to find out, was that her Prince Charming was a married father of two, a pathological liar, and a murderer. Great. Yeah. Prince Charming, man. Fred West was born in 1941 in Herefordshire to a dirt-poor family of farmhands. And coincidentally, his mother was also named Daisy. So both their mothers were named Daisy. Mm, Got a thing for flowers. He was the first surviving child in his family and ended up becoming one of eight kids. In the 1940s and into the 50s, the family lived in a cottage in the village of Muchmarkle that had no plumbing, no electricity, and was heated by a wood stove. It was referred to as a hovel, where they slaughtered pigs in the kitchen and was said to be filthy. What? Great! Oh God! I don't know that it's true, but I did. I did hear that, <laughs> and I did read that often. In must must smelled
2: months. like daisies then? Well, Fred, four roses.
1: Fred and his siblings were required to work and contribute to the family. The work they did was labor-intensive, grueling, sweaty, dirty farm and field work. It was also no place for a damp-eyed sentiment, as a fair portion of the work required the hands-on killing and butchering of animals. Fred's father was strict and was considered a disciplinarian, but his mother was also no one to be trifled with. She was an imposing woman used to manual labor and no slouch at beating rats to death with a club. (laughs) She didn't wait till Dad got home if someone needed an ass-kicking. However, when it came to Fred, she coddled him and was what they call overprotective which I'm taking to mean that she shielded him from consequences since he was known to get into trouble often. He was barely literate, and people he attended school with recalled him as scruffy and thick, and always in trouble. They remember that he was always in trouble. When he was about 16, he began hanging around a youth club in Ledbury, which is a small town in the West Midlands. So this would be about 11 years before he met Rose. His peers in Ledbury considered him countrified white trash. His aggression muted much of the appeal girls might have had for him. He would often grope them as first contact.
2: Great way to introduce (sighs) yourself. You know,
1: there were some girls that thought he was cute and that gave him play, but they weren't leaving him rave reviews either. He was done when he'd bust a nut, and he didn't see any issues with that.
2: Great. Sounds like 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 a fun time. real (laughs) charmer, (laughs) this guy.
1: By the time he was about 19, he had suffered two serious head injuries, including a skull fracture. One injury was from a motorcycle accident, and the other from getting punched out by a girl who did not appreciate him grabbing her. (laughs) Good. Nice. She punched him, and he fell two stories over the railing of a fire escape or down two flights of stairs, depending on the version that you hear. The percussive maintenance did not help him anything. And He ended up with a deathly fear of hospitals and blinding fits of rage that would erupt out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. He got better, didn't he? Uh He also ended up with a pronounced permanent limp and alterations to the symmetricality of his face. The majority of the damage was done from the motorcycle accident. So he wasn't as cute as he may have been. Before that
0: I can toe up now <laughs>
1: Yeah Toe up from the flow up With fuzzy teeth mm. Oh yeah with, with fuzzy teeth He must smell great way. too
0: It is Ryan here And I have a question for you What do you do When you win Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: That's
1: what this episode's called Fuzzy Teeth. Yeah. <laughs> In 1961, at age 20, Fred was accused of impregnating a 13-year-old girl. Oh, wonderful! At the age of 20. Mm-hmm.
2: Jesus. I wish Christ he had heaven.
1: died. His own was sister, Kitty.
2: Oh God. Jews. wait is that one of the father of two is yeah, that one the, of the two uh, this is the
1: this is the father of two
2: no but is that one of the two no the his, pregnant, what the, H- he impregnated his sister yes so that's counting one of the two children
1: no oh he has more children hold on just wait a second you're confusing me confusing you confusing me Okay, so, as I said, in 1961, at age 20, Fred was accused of impregnating a 13-year-old girl, his own sister, Kitty. She reported to mom that Fred had been sexually abusing her for about six months, and she was pregnant. Mom reported him to the police, or someone did. This is the craziest thing. And he was arrested. He made no moves to deny raping his sister. In fact, he admitted to raping and molesting other young girls since he'd hit puberty. He was quoted as saying, doesn't everybody do it?
2: Great. That shows you what goes on at home.
1: Well, Fred was never convicted for this. Although his mother was shamed and scandalized by his actions, she was prepared to testify in his defense. She reported it, but she was going to testify in his defense. That makes me like, did she report it? Like That's what I was like, well, who wasn't did? Wasn't she the one that like, idolized her son? Yeah, she, you yeah. Know? Oh, oh, just wait a second. But she didn't have to. She didn't have to testify because his victim refused to speak when she was brought into the courtroom. Uh. And it was widely believed that she was intimidated out of testifying by Fred and possibly it seems persuaded by mom as well.
2: Uh,
1: Perhaps mom thought that her testimony would not excuse him but maybe mitigate the punishment to try to get him some kind of psychiatric help. That's the best I can do. That's a reach too. I'm Mm. telling you that's a reach. So, most of his family, with the exception of one of his aunts, ghosted him right then. His mom kicked him out of the house, and eventually he would recover his relationship with his parents somewhat, but the rest of his folks remained pretty sour. Years later, Fred would make shocking allegations about his family and his early life. He claimed that his father's words of wisdom to him were, Do what you want, just don't get caught doing it. Oh my god.
2: Great parental advice.
1: Fred claimed that his father introduced him to bestiality by demonstrating to him how to have sex with sheep. Uh... Fred said that his father had been having sex with his own daughters for years. Fred also stated that his mother had always touched him all over his body, and she had introduced him to sex. He said he had been boning his own mom since he was 12. Oh
2: my god. See, that's like, that's part of it. Just to help with the mental image. Yeah, you know. and it doesn't... You know, I mean, I've seen this picture, yeah, it, and it doesn't help with the descriptor of fuzzy teeth. I, <laughs> and now just, I mean, it's, imagine if that was the, like, 2020s, how clear that picture would be, and how fuzzy his teeth would <laughs> be.
1: You zoom in on the <laughs> phone. Oh, yeah. 4K. <laughs> his brother would go on record refuting these allegations, because you would. Yeah.
2: You know? <laughs>
1: At twenty-one, Fred married a Scottish girl that he had run around with when he was younger. Her name was Catherine Costello, but she went by the name Rena, and I'm just going to call her Rena here. So, <clears throat> and this is some backwoods shit, okay? Because we did not invent white trash in America, okay? Of course not. No. Well, poverty does this. Yeah, but these desperation does this. Oh, shit okay, to yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. Check these people out. Everybody's capable of this horrible. Everybody gravity. is, but you know because, how they pre- always like, portray. You know the way people in America look back at the UK, and Ooh, yeah, know. you know th- that's why. They're for
0: some reason they're default fancy, even though that's what
1: like, I'm saying. Yeah. And it's like when you it, the people in in the UK, that's fucking humorous mm-hmm. as fuck to what them. What is
2: this number here?
1: What number? 37. Thirty-eight. Yeah, oh, that's weird. Okay, go ahead. Quit messing up my flow. The hell are <laughs> <Get> you? <laughs> up- Get the <laughs> hell on! <laughs> Talk about something else. Stop messing up my whim whams. <laughs> so, Rena had left her hometown in Cope Ridge in Scotland for Glasgow, the big city. So, this is the swinging '60s, free and single. And uh, my understanding that she was prostituting herself at this time. I suppose she was in a relationship with a bus driver from South Asia, meaning India or Pakistan or um, Bangladesh or somewhere, and had gotten pregnant. They broke up, and she was certain her family would be less than happy that she was about to have a mixed baby. So she ended up back in England rekindling with uh, Sir Genki Green Tooth. Mm. And Fred was fascinated by Rena in a different way now. Uh Uh-oh. The fact that she'd been hoeing was super exciting to him. Oh, God. Fred viewed sex workers as women willing to submit themselves to degradation. Also, she had admitted to him that the biological father was South Asian, and to his pasty white mind, that made her extra nasty. Jesus Christ. She confided in him that she didn't know what to do. He encouraged her to get an abortion which wasn't available at the time, but that was okay because Fred volunteered to do it himself. Oh, no. Don't let him near it. As I mentioned, he was an inveterate liar. He actually managed to convince her that he had the knowledge and skill to perform an abortion on her safely. And there's a story that they went by a river somewhere in the wilderness and were going to do it outside. (laughs) You know, safely. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in a sterile environment. But they abandoned the procedure when someone came along on a hike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm choosing not to believe Don't that. Don't even detail. like go
2: off into like the middle of like a patchy field somewhere. Just I, like
1: I can't I cannot believe that. I'm sorry. No. You know, go there, I cannot. That's just not gonna work for me. Rena decided to keep the child and Fred was suddenly fine with it. Instead of getting an abortion, the two got married. The only attendee at their wedding was one of Fred's brothers.
2: <laughs> it was one of, one of his family members.
1: <laughs> yeah, not hers.
2: Trashy ass motherfuckers.
1: Soon they had moved to Scotland and Fred started driving an ice cream van because... Because that's what you did. Because <laughs> he wasn't creepy enough. Because <laughs> yeah. Rena gave birth to her mixed baby and she named that baby Charmaine in 1963. In 1964, she gave birth to another daughter, Anne-Marie, who was fathered by Fred. They concocted a backstory of sorts for Charmaine because, of course, they told people that Rena had lost her baby in a miscarriage and Charmaine was adopted, and this was to account for the girl's race. They felt the need to put that out there. So if we've learned anything so far, it's that apples don't fall far from the trees that bore them. Fred became a bully to his young family. His style of parenting was to attach bars around the lower bunk of a bunk bed, stick the kids in there, and dictate that they would only be allowed out when he wasn't around. Great. And I've already told you that Fred grew up in dire poverty, wasn't educated, he married Rena, and nothing much had changed. He had a knack for art and woodwork and a penchant for thievery, and he didn't spend a lot of time brushing his teeth, Mm -hmm. apparently. (laughs) Why not? Um... Rena had also come up rough, and now that they'd moved to Coatbridge, her hometown, she hooked up with her old running buddies, her squad. And if they needed a place to stay, they could crash at Fred and Rena's place, and, uh, and they could watch the girls, the, the babies, in exchange for board. Comfortable with violence, Fred was a slave to his temper and physically lashed out at his dependents when he was annoyed. And he was also out there in the world, still grabbing on other females, still acting the way he had before. In fact, that ice cream venture of his was operating as intended by putting him in proximity to plenty of young girls. He was a real-life, vile, greasy version of Monty Python's Say No More guy. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. (laughs) He had grown up with his siblings as basically his only friends and companions. He had no idea how to sincerely befriend other men, but he did have several affairs and dalliances with other females after he'd married Rena. It never ceases to stun me how men like this always seem to be able to find women desperate enough to get involved with them. (laughs) One of these self-esteem deprived female individuals became pregnant by him. Rena was less than happy about this when she discovered it, so tit for tat, she started an affair with another man, a guy named John. When <laughs> Fred walked in on Rena and John together in an apparent moment of intimacy, he flew into a rage. Fred hit Rena. John hit Fred. Fred pulled a knife on John. John hit Fred again. Fred became compliant. <laughs> <laughs> this would be the first of several run-ins between these men. Rena continued to see John, who encouraged her to leave Fred. He observed that she was often battered and bruised, and every time he noticed new wounds on Rena, he would show up and beat the crap out of Fred.
2: Jesus Christ. Well, I mean... It's weird. It's just weird that these people are just, like,
1: this feral. <laughs> <laughs> On one occasion, when Charmaine was perhaps four years old, she had asked Fred for an ice cream for his van, and he slapped her in the head, staggering her. He may have knocked her over. Mm-hmm. And John beat Fred's ass for that, too. He said, Any decent person would have just given the kid an ice cream. Makes you wonder why she didn't leave Fred for this guy. You know, it's like. In 1965, Fred accidentally ran over and killed a four year old boy with his oh ice cream van. Oh my God. <laughs> And even though the police cleared him of a responsibility, he was concerned that he would get heat from the locals. Interestingly, at the same time... Why did the cops knew nothing? Well, they said that they cleared him. They said that it wasn't his fault, that the kid ran out in front of him or whatever they said. Jesus. And
0: we know that he actually did this because he admitted to it later? For I, I, some of them? No, no. I think, it must I think that
1: somebody saw it and oh, it was reported yeah. and then they cleared him and after why is they clear him? because like, they said, oh he's stinky let's get rid of him yeah maybe <laughs> he belongs in the uk he's not scottish get him the fuck out of here he was concerned that he would get heat from the locals yeah interestingly at the same time there were rumors among the neighborhood kids that fred the ice cream man was a perv mm-hmm. well they were right The rumor had gotten around and allegedly one of the local street gangs had put out a hit on Fred offering cash for his demise and there were plenty of folks on the dole who were more than ready to take them up on the offer.
2: (laughs) Got a line of people.
1: Something like that back then. So Fred decided it was time for him to cop a heel back down south to England. He packed up the kids and moved to Gloucester where he rented a caravan in a caravan park. A trailer. A trailer park. Rina joined him a couple of months later. She brought her friend Isa with her. Isa was one of these so-called nannies that helped out with the girls. Think couch monkey? <laughs> you know, a couch surfer surfs your couch and leaves just before you're sick of them. Okay. A couch monkey makes themselves useful so they have a longer shelf life, so to speak. Okay. Okay, so. Get it. All right, so now Isa didn't come by herself. She brought her friend Anne with her. This would be Anne McFall. She's about 16 years old and feeling lost. I, I, I put the name Anne McFall in there because there's so many ands.
2: Uh, okay. Your
1: eyes are small.
2: Because I'm high. Oh. Yes. Are my eyes small?
1: Your eyes are a bit small. I know mine are. <laughs> but his are. Yeah. And <laughs> He's like... <laughs> mm-hmm. So Isa didn't come by herself. she brought her friend Anne McFall with her. Isa and Anne accompanied Rena to England, hoping to get jobs and turn their lives around. Both of these women were well known to Fred and had surfed his couch quite a bit when they were in Scotland. So let's briefly consider the setup here, Fred, with what we know about Fred so far. Rena, his abused wife, Isa, his wife's friend, Anna, or Anne McFall, Isa's teenage friend. And the two young girls, Charmaine and Anne-Marie, all living in a confined space. John was in Scotland and not around to beat on Fred. So Fred was allowed to be as garbage as he wanted. So he began bullying and verbally abusing the women in the trailer, which quickly escalated to physical abuse. How are
0: they affording
1: this trailer at this point? Sorry. Funny you should ask. Most of the violence was directed toward Rena, but Isa also caught hell, and both women were pressured towards prostitution oh. to bring money into the household. He was also cruel to Charmaine as well, and sexually violent with Rena. Another big surprise. So, in the meantime, Fred began putting the charm on Isa's buddy and McFall. In the midst of all of this. So, and despite her witnessing Fred being his garbage-ass self, eventually the two of them began having a full-on affair, but on the DL. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And Anne McFall, lost and looking for any bit of dirt on the sidewalk, apparently, trying to give purpose to her life, convinced herself that she was in love with Fred. Now, eventually, Rena couldn't stand the situation any longer. Okay? Neither could Isa, And the two of them plotted their escape. Why they couldn't just gather the kids up, say they were on their way to the shops, and take off from there? Who can say? But that wasn't the plan. Instead, Rena called on John to come rescue her. John <laughs> met up with Isa's boyfriend, who was also named John. Great, and for sake. <laughs> and the two Johns jumped in a minivan and headed down to Bishop's Cleave.
0: All right, John. <sighs>
1: And instead of meeting up at a neutral location, they decided to roll on into the trailer park and all the way up to the trailer. (laughs) And their main fail was letting their friend, Anne McFall, in on their plan. From Anne's perspective, since she was in love with Fred and wanted him to leave Rena anyway, you would think that she would be assisting these folks with their exit. You would think so. But instead, she chose to give Fred advance notice, so even though the guys came... When Fred was supposed to be at work, Fred showed up to make a scene. And of course, the Johns were never in danger. They got a couple of licks in on him before the police rolled up. But when the police arrived, Fred was clinging onto the children and making a big production out of Rena allegedly being a homewrecker and trying to break up their family. Now, why he wasn't accused of abuse, why he wasn't arrested, why the women left with the Johns, and why it was a given that they would leave both kids behind, especially since one of them was not even a biological relation to Fred. All of that's kind of mind-boggling, so I'm sure I must be missing something, but likely likely Fred wanted to hold on to the kids, partially to have something over Rena and also to avoid yeah. having to pay child support for them. So Rena and Issa took off with the two Johns back to Scotland. And concerned for the kids, still, she visited frequently. And at first, things were actually copacetic between Rena and Anne McFall. And still on the DL with Fred, remained in Bishop's Cleave, claiming that she was satisfied with continuing to be a nanny for Charmaine and Anne-Marie. <laughs> now, Rena did care for her daughters and disliked leaving them behind. She also was not enjoying how... Anne McFaul was making a meal out of her role as stepmother, completely overriding Rena's influence over the girls, etc. So angry about this, Rena stole some things from the trailer on her last visit. I take this and this, <laughs> and then returned to Scotland. And then she was arrested several days later uh. for this crime and put on three years probation. Well, that helps. Uh-uh. Fred still has the kids, his now eighteen-year-old side chick Anne McFaul had moved into her own caravan in the park. But Anne McFall became pregnant by Fred. Great. And when she was eight months along, she disappeared. (sighs) A month later, Rena returned to England, and she and Fred moved to a different caravan park, and their relationship was on again, off again. And when it was off, Rena would usually return to Scotland, leaving Fred alone with the kids. No, no,
2: no.
1: Now that Anne had vanished. During those times when Fred had no female to look after the girls, he would often leave them in care, which is foster care in America. Yeah, Yeah. it's like
2: one of those things of like, I can't raise them right now, come back and pick them up later. Yeah,
1: and it must be easy to get your kids, or much easier to get your kids out of foster care in the UK than it is here. So all of that had transpired previously. All of that happened before... Rose yeah, yeah. even met her Prince Charming. When Rose introduced Fred to her family, they disliked him on sight. And you can imagine. Really? <laughs> you can imagine her father having a thing about cleanliness would not be very happy.
2: I don't know. Let's stop right there. For Fuzzy Cheese Teeth, not great. But the fact that. He, oh, sorry. But the fact that he's 10 years older than she is. I'm sure that's probably the first thing as soon as he stepped into the house.
1: Well, also looking like crap like, and no, hey, yeah, and I no money. Take your daughter, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah Oh goodness. Yeah, and his and her father started a whole bunch of shenanigans to prevent Rose from seeing Fred. Oh
2: boy, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. We also got to backtrack. Her father, mm-hmm. the schizophrenic, mm-hmm. child touchy.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like yes. I know what it's like to be like him. <laughs> well, he's like uh, he he started all these shenanigans to prevent Rose from seeing Fred, up to and including involving the law, and every action that was taken, of course, had the opposite effect and only drew Rose closer to Fred. <laughs> so he has the law following Fred around for statutory rape.
2: Well, simultane, okay. You
1: know. Physician, heal thyself. <laughs> so, but okay. By October of 1970, the two were living together in the bottom flat of a duplex in Gloucester, and Rose was giving birth to her first child, her daughter Heather Ann. And by the way, there was talk that this baby Heather was actually fathered by Bill Letts, Rose's dad. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of months after Heather was born, Fred got locked up for theft and was sentenced to six and a half months in custody. Okay. At this time, Rose was in charge of an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and an infant, and she was just seventeen years old herself.
2: Just so because she was just like
1: the step-in stepmom. Mm-hmm. Okay. It hasn't been mentioned yet, so I'll mention it here. <laughs> Rose (laughs) also had an issue with anger and was capable of flipping that switch in a second and then flipping it back again like nothing had happened.
2: Those are the creepy ones. Those are the ones you don't want
1: to be around ever. Well, at 17, she hadn't quite mastered that second part just yet, but she was working on it. So, as the official woman of the house, Rose demanded to be respected and honored by the girls and told them to refer to her as their mother. At the same time, she was cruel, mean, and violent with them. Anne-Marie was docile and quick to comply, but her big sister was another story. Charmaine was the oldest, and she'd been through a lot in her very young life. She was just eight at this time. She was being physically and sexually abused by the only father she'd ever known. She'd watched this man beat and torment her mother and her mom's friends, and daily she'd been called every racist epithet they could think of. Mm -hmm. She lived for the day her mother would return for her, and she was counting the seconds. And she was also very proficient at triggering Rose. Rose would slap the girls around over petty things and then insist they call her mum. And in effect, this little girl was telling her to her face, You are not my mum. My mother wouldn't treat me that way. My mother would not talk to us like that. You couldn't be my mother because my mom's a good person. Charmaine was also stoic as hell and refused to scream or react no matter what Rose did to her. Oh my God. There was an incident which wasn't reported at the time but came to light later. A neighbor girl who lived in an apartment in the same building and often played with Charmaine and Anne Marie entered their flat unannounced one day and discovered a bizarre tableau. Anne Marie, near the door, staring blankly ahead, Charmaine, naked, gagged and standing on a chair with her hands bound behind her back, looking calm and unconcerned, and looming over Charmaine was Rose wielding a wooden spoon. She didn't stay. Not long after this, the neighbors moved to a different building, and when the girl came by with her mother for a visit, they noticed Charmaine was not there. When asked about her whereabouts, Rose replied, She's gone to live with her mother, and bloody good riddance. Anyone that asked about Charmaine was told that Rena had come to collect her and they were living in Bristol. Charmaine's school was told that she moved to London with Rena. And after his release, Fred told seven year old Anne Marie that Rena had come for Charmaine and the two were living together in Scotland. When Anne Marie asked why Rena didn't take her too, Fred told her, She wouldn't want you, love. You're the wrong color. Oh
2: my God. Goddamn. Oh,
1: in the looking meantime, yeah, I know, huh? In the meantime, Rena was anxious, depressed, and concerned for her daughters. Fred had moved house and hadn't kept in touch. Apparently, Rena was having personal issues, trying to get her life together, you know, uh, all of that stuff that keeps a person focused on themselves. But uh, she managed to push through all of that stuff and hit the road looking for her girls. Eventually, she visited Fred's parents in Muchmarkle, and they provided her with Fred's current address on Midland Road in Gloucester. That was in August of 1971, and it was the last time anyone recalled seeing
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered chumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now, Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.
1: Rose and Fred were married at the end of January in 1972 at the registry office. They moved closer to the center of town and rented a council house on Cromwell Street, which they were later able to purchase from the council for between six and seven thousand pounds. The closest we have to the situation in the States is low-income housing run by some government agency that would allow you the option to rent or buy. I did a little math on this one, you know, and there, there are three things you never want to leave up to me. Picking a restaurant, choosing a direction, and solving a math problem. But I'm going to share my results, unashamedly, <laughs> with you. According to the Google, this would be about 75,000 pounds or about 87,000 pounds or euros in today's money for a three-story building with a small back garden, okay? And I would assume this is some kind of mortgage situation, you know, initially. But I don't know how this stuff works in the UK. You couldn't buy a cage on top of someone's refrigerator for that kind of money. hell. So anyway, not at all. even this is deceptive, though, when I picture a three story house, I'm not picturing 25 Cromwell Street in Gloucester. I could not find an actual floor plan, but there are plenty of photos online showing the building exterior and an officer standing in front of it, which gives scale. There are aerial pics, and when you look at the building, you have to consider that the inner stairwell would have taken up a good portion of the space in the building. Keep in mind when viewing the pics that their house was semi-detached, meaning it was attached to another residential building. So, 25 Cromwell Street is the residence painted tan with the avocado green trim around the windows and the part of the building that was painted white is a separate residence. So, Cromwell Street was located in what was called bedsit land, as we discussed in the beginning, and the people who lived in the neighborhood were people who would generally rather live somewhere else. Fred and Rose were nothing if not enterprising people, and despite the minuscule size of the house on Cromwell, they began Renting a couple of bedsit rooms located on the upper floor of the house. How many rooms they rented is unclear. For the most part, Fred was a builder when he wasn't thieving and he made several modifications to the house, of which he was pretty proud for some reason. One thing I found striking about the place on Cromwell was how dingy and rundown it was, inside and out, but especially inside. The floors, for the most part, look like concrete with the occasional linoleum tile here and there. And the bathroom looks like something out of a Saw movie, not something you ran out. Everything was tiny and shabby. And to provide some semblance of privacy for his family, Fred installed a cooker or an oven, in American, and a sink on one of the stair landings. That's... You gotta the thing. Yeah, but also, I mean, it's going to be taking up some space. Yeah. Yeah. So, to make most of the property, he created a playroom of sorts in the cellar of the building, replete with soundproofing. No. The couple had their bedroom, and there was Mandy's room, and don't forget they had kids. So, even though Charmaine was no longer in the picture, there was still Anne-Marie and Heather, and by June of 72, Rose gave birth to another girl, whom they named May. People who knew the family at this time thought of them in a relatively positive light. Fred was always quick with an innuendo or flirtatious joke and always brought the topic back to sex no matter where it started. He was considered creepy but harmless. He just gave off the knuckle-dragging laborer with inappropriate sense of humor vibes like a a caricature of a 1970s construction worker or something. (laughs) So much of that behavior was just dismissed and brushed off. Women who were on good terms with Rose knew the couple had a wild sex life. Rose confided in a few of these friends and told of how she and Fred would pick up females and bring them back to their cellar playroom for threesomes and other fun and games. She even detailed to a few of her buddies how they went about picking up these girls and enticing them back to their place, and then asked them what they thought of what she told them. The responses she received were along the lines of, well, to each his own. It's not my thing, but, you know, do your own thing. What Of course, she wasn't telling her friends everything, though. In fact, she was leaving out quite a bit. Please dispense with any notion that this woman was coerced into this behavior by a domineering older man. Fred was older, but Rose had access to the pants in this family. For one thing, he came home and dropped his wallet in her lap, meaning that she was in control of the finances. He gave his pay packet over to her to decide what to do with it. Also, she was fond of boasting that no one could satisfy her. She was an nymphomaniac with an insatiable desire for sex. Several sources that I came across claimed that she had confided that she got more satisfaction out of contact with other females than she did with men. But the contacts that got her off were not gentle or loving. Their playroom in the cellar hadn't been soundproofed to muffle the symphony of ecstasy that was occurring down there. Mm-hmm. It was a dreary dungeon with whitewashed brick walls fitted with restraints, a mattress, and an extensive selection of extreme porn. It was apparent to any female who ended up on the wrong side of that cellar door that Fred and Rose were both horny as hell and intoxicated by the suffering that they caused others to endure. And who has the energy to do this? You wonder, how many <laughs> how many moments in the day did you... How, what was your schedule like? Yeah. I mean... I haven't got... I mean, I haven't even... I what was your schedule like? I mean, I just really wonder about that. Let's well, see. It's
2: because it's like... I think about even trying to get some paperwork done and I've got anxiety about the time it's going to take to do it. You're sitting here making basement rooms and having orgies. Like... <laughs> okay.
1: Okay, well... Yeah, I mean, it just seems that they were super fucking busy. They just seem busy well, to me. Well,
0: it's... it's not like he ever worked a job. It sounds
1: like or no. He was like a builder. That. He was working as a builder, oh, oh, no. and that was one of the things that this. That's one of the things that they were saying about him, is that um, that he had been taught to work from a very young age. For her part, Rose enjoyed choking females or suffocating them to the point of unconsciousness. She enjoyed penetrating them with strap-ons, or dildos, or vibrators, fruits, vegetables, or anything else she had on hand. Her arousal was only heightened as she increased the size of the object and observed the discomfort or outright agony she was causing her partner, uh-huh. All the while taunting them by asking if they were woman enough to take it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, think
2: I know, huh? This is a sidebar, but... <laughs> this is a horrible sidebar, but... <laughs> I'm I do not know if it's still there, but we went to the castro one time and (laughs) (laughs) I mean (laughs) one of the stores, they have a sex toy that's literally just a stump. Like not like a real stump, but it's just like it looks like a stump. Like a tree stump? Like a tree stump. And I'm just like like, who cut no, it's like broken a broken tree stump? (laughs) But made of like silicone or something. But it's like this, It's like who's sitting on that? <laughs> Some of these. It's like egg boy. At this point, your <laughs> fucking butthole is just going to go
1: anytime you fucking fart. You ever think about that? Like if you were to like anybody, male or female, are used to something like that being in their butthole all the time. Seems like when they got to be older or something that...
2: Everything would just fall out. Yeah.
1: Like (laughs) if they had, like, you know, Chipotle or something. (laughs) 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 You're like... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In a natural segue, soon after giving birth to May, Rose went on the game, as they say, to supplement Fred's income and cover all the wonderful home improvements. She started hoeing, And her hoe name was Mandy. And Mandy's room was where she did her hoeing. And Fred saw to it that she had the very latest in hoe accommodations. (laughs) (laughs) Like a sink right next to her double bed because you need that. Mm -hmm. And peepholes throughout so that Fred could keep an eye on her for his own amusement. And there was also an intercom installed so that it could hear into the room. A private... Slap his ass. (laughs) (laughs) A private doorbell specifically for her customers and a red light to indicate when she was and wasn't available. Oh my god. The room was secured with a deadbolt lock and Rose wore the only key around her neck. She advertised for clients through contact magazines. um, Like the Spectator and shit, I guess. You know, like back in the olden days before everybody had computers, they would have these little raggy magazines that you could buy or swipe from a kiosk and uh, they would have a, maybe an article or two or something yeah and maybe a, an advice column or something but they would cons- mostly consist of nothing but personal ads so this is like the the equivalent of craigslist personals where you have swingers looking for hookups and stuff and And some of these were specific to a fetish or kink, and most of them were pretty generic, I guess. And Rose's Mandy hooked up with most of her clients in this way or word of mouth. Fred suggested that she advertise her services to men from the West Indies in particular, Caribbean men. She apparently didn't have any objections to this, but it seems the fetish was his. He had a desire to watch his wife have sex with black men. Great. In addition to the girls they brought to their cellar the client she saw, and Fred himself. Rose was also fucking around with some of their tenants, male and female, and any random person Fred brought by, including guys that he worked with. (laughs) In the past, Rose was never stunning, just young. But no longer the ingenue now, just an average-looking woman. And having several babies hadn't made her any less dumpy since her workout routine basically consisted of just fucking a lot. Burn them Mm. calories, girl. (laughs) I mean, these people fucked like they were on a mission. Rabbits and shit. Like they were at war and that was their weapon. Now, I've alluded to their playroom and to the girls that they brought there, but I'm going to tell you now about a specific case. In 1972, a 17-year-old local girl named Caroline was hitchhiking one evening, a pretty common means of getting around at the time. A car stopped to pick her up, and as she approached, she saw an ordinary-looking couple, Rose and Fred, inside, They seemed safe and friendly, so she accepted. As they delivered her to her destination, they made conversation and she mentioned that she was having problems with her stepfather and she was looking for work. And Rose told her that they happened to be looking for a nanny to watch their young kids. And it sounded ideal to Caroline. She was offered an opportunity to live closer to the town center to share a room with their oldest daughter, Anne Marie, in exchange for childcare. And they also promised to give her a ride to her mother's house once a week. Where do I sign up, she asked, and she moved right in. Caroline observed that Anne-Marie was particularly glum and withdrawn, which was kind of unusual for a little girl. Rose frequently took different men into a room at various hours of the day and night. She told Caroline that she was a masseuse, and that was why she had all these random visitors. Meanwhile, Fred was lurking around and being generally really creepy with all the innuendos and suggestions. Fred told Caroline that should she ever get knocked up, she shouldn't worry because he was an excellent abortionist.
2: Oh whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. You're just bypassing, you know, like yeah. talking about yeah. like gardening. If you ever going
1: out with your boyfriend. In- yeah, if you're ever out with your boyfriend and you knocks sure, you don't worry about it. Just let me know and I can give you an abortion. I'm an excellent abortionist. Mm-hmm. Payment won't be an issue because uh, he advised that most of his customers paid for their abortions with sexual favors. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you though? Yes. Are you really? No, because you
0: know. it was bound to come out eventually, yeah.
1: that's and I, what, I hit that's it on a says. pause. Oh.
2: I hit it on a pause. <laughs> you like finish
0: the sentence, and then it. Like,
2: well, you know, if you did a marker, there you are. There you
0: are. <laughs> just a huge spike on the audio. <laughs> You'll see it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I leaned away from the microphone. No, thank you so
1: much. It's just in case you have the headphones on, it's sound all cranked up to eighty-nine. Let's see, um. So eventually, Caroline got skeeved with this stuff and decided that she needed to leave, and so she moved out. In the meantime, Rose and Fred had gotten to know Caroline a bit while she was living with them, and they learned her schedule and her routines. They also knew that she was a polite young lady, and with that information, after Caroline moved out, they were able to accidentally, on purpose, encounter Caroline in the process of hitching a ride while they were supposedly returning from one place to another. After apologizing on the case that they had by chance made her feel uncomfortable when she was living with them, they offered Caroline a lift. And although everything inside of her screamed no, Caroline yielded to her politeness and allowed them to give her a ride. Oh, jeez. As she entered the back seat, Rose jumped out of the car and slid into the seat beside her, saying that she just wanted to have a girls' chat. As she got in, Fred pulled off. And they made a small bit of chit-chat. They asked her where she was coming from and she admitted that she had just seen her boyfriend. Fred began ta- talking under her clothes and asking her if she just had sex with her boyfriend. She told him it was none of his business. And Fred just laughed and suggested that Rose should check. Rose didn't need to be asked twice. She jammed her hand into Caroline's underwear and began raking around in there. And Caroline was a polite girl but she was still a girl from the hood so she began throwing hands in the back seat. And when it became obvious that Rose had a real fight on her hands, Fred pulled the car over, reached into the back seat, and punched Caroline in the head until she was unconscious. Jesus. Caroline found herself at the house on Cromwell Street, somewhere she'd planned never to go again. She had been bound and gagged, and these bonds were eased enough to allow her a tea, which she soon re- realized had been drugged. She was stripped and her body examined by the couple who discussed the peculiarity of her genitals with one another as if she wasn't even there. She was whipped with a leather belt and raped by both of the Wests. When she screamed out in pain while the abuse continued, Rose stifled her screams with a pillow, pushing it into Caroline's face and blocking her ability to breathe. Oh my God! She shifted from this to strangling Caroline with a strap or belt while going down on her. Though drugged and out of it to some degree, Caroline realized that this was not just a vicious sexual assault. There was a real possibility that these people were going to end her. She could see how into it they were, and the more she resisted, the more excited they became. So she stopped fighting them, hoping they would tire or lose interest, and eventually they did call it a night. But they didn't release her. In the morning, Caroline began screaming, hoping to be heard by a passerby. Despite Fred's soundproofing, her cries were heard by one of the kids in the house, resulting in Fred's intervention. He told her to shut her fucking mouth. She was only there to please his wife. He didn't give two shits about her. He could make money off of her. He could find plenty of men to rape and abuse her. In fact, he knew a ton of black men he could call for the purpose. He would just leave her tied in their cellar and run her out have loads of men streaming in, and when it was done, he would bury her under the paving stones of Gloucester, just one of hundreds of girls he'd killed. That's what he said to her. Mm -hmm. And
0: how old was the kid?
1: Seventeen. At this point, Caroline decided that her best option was to play along. Yeah,
2: probably for the moment.
1: (laughs) She became very agreeable and acquiescent. Rose sort of liked her in her own strange way to begin with, and so Caroline played to that. And this seems to have worked because, believe it or not, Rose asked her if she would reconsider coming back to work for them, living with them as their private pet. Seeing light at the end of the tunnel, Caroline agreed. She was, oh, un-
0: no. <laughs> she was
1: untied and allowed to vacuum yeah. the house to tidy up and help with the chores. Later that same day, she went with Rose to a laundromat to wash clothes. And once there, Caroline told Rose that she had to go and she promised she wouldn't tell. Rose did not make a scene. She just permitted Caroline to leave without incident. It's 1972. It was 1972.
2: (laughs) Can't argue that. It's
1: 1972. She was 17 years old, and the West had done some pretty shocking things to Caroline. She was traumatized and wanted to pretend that none of it happened. She tried to do this. However, when she returned home and her mother saw the state of her, she wouldn't let it rest, and she insisted that Caroline tell her what happened. And eventually Caroline broke down and confided to her mother the details of the attack and how she had freed herself. Mom wasn't having it and went to the police immediately. Both Fred and Rose were arrested and charged with assault, indecent assault, assault with actual bodily harm and rape. But when the case was scheduled to be heard, Caroline refused to testify.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because of this, all charges pertaining to sexual assault were dismissed. The West pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of assault and assault with bodily harm. They were each fined 50 pounds apiece.
0: Oh my fucking God.
1: And allowed to go about their merry business. And although this would have dire consequences, I don't blame Caroline at all. Back in 1972, it was still standard practice to cast aspersions on rape victims and their entire sexual history oh, would absolutely. be on full view.
0: Still is today.
1: hmm as if a sexual assault is ever justified. Something else to keep in mind is that Caroline was assaulted by the West on December 6th, and the court date was held on January 12th. I doubt she received any actual counseling in the interim, and she was just 17. So I believe in speedy justice and all, but that was the definition of too soon. Mm-hmm. And when Caroline found out how everything went down, she attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. No matter what, and despite all this commercial, extracurricular, and criminal quote unquote socializing, Rose always made time for her family. Her father, Bill Letts Rose. Yeah. Her father, Bill Lets developed a tolerance for Fred conveniently. And they opened a small cafe together called the Green Lantern, which failed almost immediately. But Bill's acceptance of Rose's marriage to Fred meant that he could continue to visit and his incestuous relations with Rose could continue no. on as they always had, but this time with Fred's knowledge and presumably under his surveillance. Ew. No. Rose was all about that family life. And- with the Lucky
2: Land Slots, you can get lucky just
1: about anywhere. By 1983, she had given birth to eight children, and Fred didn't father all of them. Several of the children were fathered by her clients. At least two of the children she bore were of mixed race. Fred told those kids that the reason they were darker was because his grandmother was black and the genes were just random like that. Rose was the lady of the house, and since she opted to work from home, she was the law to the kids, which... Um, And when each reached the age of seven, they were assigned a variety of chores. And with the exception of school, their relationships to the outside world were pretty much curtailed. They were expected to be at home when they weren't at school. And this was enforced. Rose wasn't shy with the rod or anything else at hand when she was angry. She was prone to the same bursts of extreme rage as her father, and there was nothing standing between her and the children as a mediating force. Fred was also violent with the children and would slap, punch, and kick them, but Rose was home all the time, so most of the discipline came from her. When Anne-Marie was eight years old, Rose and Fred brought her down to the cellar. Oh, God. She was told to remove her clothes. The girl looked at them, bewildered and unsure. She loved her parents, and she feared them. She wanted to comply, but knew instinctively that this wasn't right. Seeing this reluctance, Rose removed Anne-Marie's clothes herself, forcefully pulling them off. Anne-Marie was made to lay on the mattress. Rose forced her down and then sat on her face. Oh my god. Just breathing became a struggle, and what she felt her father doing to her was excruciatingly painful. When it was all over, they both admonished her against telling anyone what had happened. They also told her this. This is what happens to girls. It makes them better people. Every father that loves his child will do this, and that's how she knows that her parents care for her because they're taking this time to make her a better person. Rose then escorted Anne-Marie to the bathroom so that she could wash herself, and she made light of the situation by hanging back to watch the difficulty the girl was having trying to walk after the assault on her genitals and laughing about it. Anne-Marie was eight years old. These were her parents doing these things and telling her this stuff. And she didn't feel right about any of it, but she looked around at the other girls at school. They were going on with their lives. She just assumed that all of them were getting the same kind of treatment from their parents, but they weren't bothered by it, which reinforced the propaganda her parents were pushing that this was normal but private and people just didn't discuss it. Sad. These personal improvement sessions would continue, often initiated by Rose. Her stepmother would bind her to different objects like a chair or a table or something and then incite Fred to rape her. Fred didn't need to be there, though. Rose enjoyed dressing Anne-Marie in a miniskirt, inserting various devices or toys into her and then ordering her to clean the house while she would sit back, supervise, catcall and verbally abuse her. When May was eight years old, Rose and Fred brought her down to the cellar because apparently eight is the magic number. When Anne-Marie was 13 years old, her stepmother brought her into Mandy's room. There was a client present. Rose told him that Anne-Marie was 16. And this, too, would continue, being pimped out by her parents. And Rose would always be present, and if requested, actively participated in these activities. The reason she was there was she was concerned that Anne-Marie would reveal her actual age. Some of the Johns did not fall for this, and at least one reported it to the police, but nothing came of it. The information available about the home life of this family comes primarily from several of the children. Those of mixed race haven't been very public about their upbringing, but to say that, at least when it comes to Fred, he was really only interested in the children that he fathered. It was the opposite of many pedophiles and abusers who feel fine molesting other people's kids but draw the line at their own offspring. Fred believed that the kids he fathered belonged to him to do with as he pleased. He fundamentally owned them. He would tell them, I made you, and I can do with you as I like. Somehow, in the midst of everything, Anne Marie managed to meet someone a few years older than her, but still a teen. They fell in love, and just as Bill Letts had done, Fred and Rose tried to break up this relationship, actually tried to report the boy for statutory rape since the age of consent was 16, and she was still underage. After raping her and pimping her out. Yeah. Anne Marie became pregnant, and this would have been Fred's baby. And he had told her about his, and he had mentioned to her at least once that he had the intention of impregnating she and her sisters. Jesus. Uh, but Anne Marie did become pregnant, but it was. He an- should have
0: died when he fell off that fucking. Yeah, huh? Shit. And that blind lady punched him yeah. in the face. It should have been. Over. It should
1: have happened a floor two higher, huh? Yeah. Anne Marie became pregnant, but it was an ectopic pregnancy, meaning the fetus was developing outside the womb and wasn't viable. And she had to have a procedure to remove the fetus. And a few days later, while recovering at home, Rose got upset with her about something and began attacking her, focusing her attacks on Anne Marie's midsection. Mm-mm. And that was the last draw for Anne-Marie. She left home again and stayed left. And this was in about 1979. She said later that she realized she couldn't protect her siblings any longer because they were going to kill her. Yeah. And what we know about abusers like Fred and Rose is once their victims grow unavailable to them, they simply move to the next in line. So May became the target, then Heather. Even their brother Stephen was being told that he would be expected to start sexing his mom once he turned 17.
2: Jesus Spoiler Christ.
1: Spoiler alert, he managed to move out before that happened. Thank God. He's like... <laughs> 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 no! <laughs> now, Heather's abuse seems to have been more brutal than the others in some ways. It was said that Fred had always disliked Heather and was harsher on her because of this. You can't measure or compare suffering. He who feels it knows it more. All of the West children grew up in hell, and the only difference in their treatment was based on the whims of their psychotic parents. Heather was deeply affected by the abuse, and although she tried to hide it and had been warned for years never to say a word to anyone about it, people began to get a peek at the family secrets. Rose and Fred had made it a policy to never bruise their victim's face or hands, as that would be a surefire way to get caught. However, they didn't account for the pressure their kids would be under to shower and dress for P.E. And once they caught a glimpse of her bruises, they had questions. But Heather passed off the scars and bruises as battle scars from feuding with her siblings. Here's the thing, though. You can't turn tricks from home for over a decade with a house full of kids, tenants, and buku visitors without the neighbors, no matter how transient they are, pegging you as sus. Yeah. Rumors had already been floating around the schools the kids were attending that Rose was renting out her cooch for parties, so to speak. And Mm. Heather confided to a close school friend that all the rumors were... All the rumors were... All the rumors were true! I'm
0: surprised that there weren't, like, drugs. They were doing, like, selling drugs and shit, too. You would
1: think. You know what they say. Little pitchers can't hold much water. Her friend, unable to keep this confidence to herself, told her parents... And somehow it got around to a buddy of the West who let Fred know that his daughter was in public co-signing for these rude stories. And Fred and Rose began to police Heather much more closely than before, with Fred escorting her to and from school to discourage her socializing. Heather left school in 1986 and was desperate to find work that would take her off of Cromwell Street and well away from Gloucester and her parents' grasp. But the job climate was in the toilet at the time in the 80s, with tons of people her age relying on public assistance to get by, and a year later she was still stuck at home with her folks. She begged her sister Anne-Marie to let her move in for a while, but Anne-Marie refused her. She was afraid that it would bring her parents to her new home in search of Heather, and who knew where that would go? She was fairly certain that Fred and Rose weren't going to let go of Heather just yet unless she went far enough away, so... Heather applied for a position in the resort town of Torquay, which is a good distance away from Gloucester, on the southern coast of England, in the English Riviera. That's where Faulty had his, uh, Faulty Towers was set in Torquay. <sighs> in mid-June, Heather received word that she would not be hired for the position in Torquay. She would completely fall apart. Her sister, May, stated that she cried herself to sleep all night. A day or so later, the kids were told that Heather had received another message from the place to which she had applied, informing her that they'd reconsidered their decision, and so she'd left for Torquay and her new career and her new life with her lesbian lover, so she wouldn't be likely to keep in touch. It's like, huh? (laughs) When asked by a neighbor regarding Heather's whereabouts, Rose replied that they'd gotten into what she called a hell of a row, and Heather had decided to run away from home. Concerned, the siblings suggested that a missing persons inquiry be filed with the police, and Fred then told them ah, that, that wouldn't be wise if they were really concerned for Heather since she was involved with credit card fraud and that would just have the cops after her. Time went on, and Heather was no longer around, and so it became the turn of the next child in line. Now, their daughter Louise was raped by a parents for the first time at the age of 11, although time had marched by. Rose and Fred were still as randy and perverted as ever. Louise had endured sexual molestation for two years before Fred lured her to a room in the house one day in 1992 and violently raped and sodomized her, Good God! savagely strangling her nearly unconscious before leaving her writhing on the floor for her siblings to discover later. Rose had been out, but once she returned and was informed, she was blase about it. She told Louise that she had been asking for it. On another occasion, Rose had been present and witnessed the vicious rape and followed Louise as she staggered to the bathroom with blood running down her legs. Rose's pearls of maternal wisdom. What did you expect? He raped her several more times, even filming one of these attacks. Terrified but desperate, Louise eventually confided to a school friend whose mother placed an anonymous call reporting it to the police. In August of 92, the police arrived at 25 Cromwell Street and informed the West that they needed to search the house for stolen property. This was a ruse. They were actually there to find evidence of the abuse. They did search the building and found lots of strange stuff, all kinds of sexual paraphernalia, all kinds of porn, but they did not find the video of Louise. But times had changed a bit. Techniques had changed and attitudes had changed. They had evolved to the point where they understood that they needed to have trained specialists interviewing victims, particularly underage victims of sexual abuse. And even though they didn't find the evidence they were seeking, they took the word of the children seriously. Louise made a complete statement to the police detailing the abuse she'd suffered and the children were removed from the West custody. All of the minor children were placed in care, were interviewed and examined by a physician. There was clear physical evidence of physical and sexual abuse on their bodies. The children advised the police that Rose was responsible for most of the abuse. The younger Sadistic children... Ass bitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The younger children remained in care and the West were allowed supervised visitations where the children could visit them at home. What then followed was the kind of thing that often happens in cases of familial abuse. There were mixed feelings among the children and fear about whether and how far to pursue things. Though at least one sibling had agreed to testify to support Louise, Louise backed out from her own testimony, dropping all charges and requesting to return to her parents' home. They were all very familiar with Rose's vindictive nature, and they feared her wrath. Except for a couple of details on some dedicated police work that might have been the end of the investigation altogether. For one thing, in interviewing Anne-Marie, she admitted the years of abuse she'd been through. She also happened to mention that she hadn't seen or heard from her biological mother and her half-sister Charmaine for many years and had been unable to find them. When asked about their sister Heather, the children could tell the authorities only what they knew. Rose had said that she'd moved to Torquay, and then there was also the family's end joke Rose and Fred would warn their kids that they'd better behave or they would end up just like Heather in the back garden.
0: Yeah, three, good joke. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. three down, seven across, referring to the paving stones in their narrow private yard. They would laugh after saying this. God. But it was a joke, right? a funny joke. Yeah, right. Seemed like the thing to hysterical do... A hysterical joke. Yeah, seemed like the thing to do would be to find Heather and make sure she was still among the living, so... While they had dropped molestation charges against the West, they continued to investigate these loose ends. In doing so, they realized that Heather had vanished off the face of the planet she hadn't been seen or heard from since 1987, and and neither Rena Costello nor Little Charmaine West had been seen since 1971. According to Inland Revenue and Social Security, those identities were inactive. They pursued the criminal records of the West, particularly Fred's, They encountered a police constable, Hazel Savage, who remembered interviewing Rena Costello way back in 1966 regarding Fred's physical abuse. In light of the newer allegations against Fred and the revelations regarding Rena's likely demise, Savage was instrumental in making sure the house on Cromwell Street was re-examined, keeping in mind the family in-joke. It was clear someone needed to take a look beneath those paving stones." More time had passed in the meanwhile, and it's not clear how much of any pressure Fred and Rose were feeling from the authorities and or their general situation, but Rose seemed pretty damn surprised to see the cops on her doorstep on February 24th, 1994, with a search warrant giving them permission to dig up her back garden. As soon as she realized their intention, she flipped out, became verbally abusive, and told one of her kids to go find Fred. Although the kid found Fred immediately and he said he would be right home, it took hours for him to materialize. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're phrasing. Thanks. And when he did, he told the police that this was all about nothing because Heather was alive and well, working as a prostitute and enmeshed in a drug cartel of some sort. Uh, it yeah, it's all about nothing. Thing. Yeah. Nothing. The cops weren't buying it though. Although the cops knocked off for the night, they left a the guard on duty to watch over their excavation site, and there was no opportunity for Fred or Rose to do anything but wait for the crews to arrive, arrive in the morning. May and Stephen observed their parents whispering to one another and occasionally glancing out the window towards the yard. Early the next morning, Fred told Stephen that he and Rose planned to sell the house because he had done something terrible, and that Stephen should go to the newspapers and try to profit from this in some way. When the police showed up, Fred told them that he was prepared to make a confession to his daughter's murder. He told them that he killed her accidentally in a fit of anger. He claimed to have dismembered her corpse, storing it in a trash bin until a grave could be prepared for her body. That grave would later be dug by the children. Oh, for mm. fuck's sake. Yeah. <sighs> These people are awful. On, under the pretense that they were doing something you know, that was going to be a planter or something. He told them that Rose had no idea about this as he committed this crime while she was busy with one of her clients. So he he's like, well, while I was doing this, she was with a client, so she didn't know. In the meantime, the police had been excavating the yard but had not found anything. So Fred took the opportunity to advise them that they were digging in the wrong place, and he directed them to the correct spot to dig up. This was Fred's attempted damage control. Compared to some of the places that he'd lived, 25 Cromwell Street was a palace. He owned it. And as a builder, he was proud of the remodeling he'd done to his spot and didn't want the police to tear it all up. Maybe he would confess to Heather's murder and they'd dig up her body and leave the rest of the place alone. You know, damage control. Now, I doubt this would have worked, but you never know. The jig was up, though, when they dug were directed and found three femurs. great. Okay. And that's when everything went pear shaped for Fred. Once charged, Fred admitted that there were a total of three bodies in the back garden, and when the bodies were recovered, he was subsequently charged for the murders of all three women. Although Rose had been arrested, Fred continued to insist that she had no knowledge of the murders or of the bodies buried on the property. The body of Heather West was identified, she'd been dismembered. Her fingernails were discovered alongside her corpse. (sighs) and several smaller bones in her body were missing oh god police increased the pressure on fred demanding he reveal what happened to rena and charmaine as well they also weren't finished with the property on cromwell now let us recall that the house on cromwell was small and the west family had expanded considerably since they'd first purchased it back in 72 Eventually their basement had been converted into bedrooms for their kids. Police found five more bodies under the floor where their kids had been sleeping in the cellar. Oh no. Jesus. And an additional corpse beneath the floor in the spare bathroom down there. To be fair, Fred had told authorities the bodies were there, which prompted them to pull up the cement floor in the basement and confirm the house was an unofficial mausoleum. Uh- Fred announced via note that he was prepared to confess to more murders, including those of his stepdaughter, Charmaine, and his ex-wife, Rena. He claimed that the victims buried on Cromwell Street were hitchhikers, girls that he picked up at bus stops, and women with whom he'd been having affairs. This latter group of females had each been targeted, he claimed, after they threatened to tell Rose about their relationship with Fred. One of the victims, whose body was found, was, Fred claimed, a tenant of theirs who was a lesbian and eight months pregnant with his child. He had brought his victims' bodies to Cromwell Street to dismember them for easy disposal. The bodies of the victims told stories of extended sessions of extreme sexual torture and abuse. All of the bodies had been mutilated and taken apart. The missing small bones, including parts of the ankles, kneecaps, and fingers, turned out to be something of a signature. Fred never revealed why these were taken or what was done with them. It's been speculated that they were part of some kind of oddball souvenir collection he was amassing. Another kink of his was to encase the victim's head in lengths of tape and then add a piece of rubber tubing he could insert in their nostrils to permit them to breathe. Evidence of this was found in the shallow graves just a foot or two from the underside of his kids' beds. None of the bodies on Cromwell Street belonged to Charmaine or Rena. Eventually, Fred caved a bit and revealed the locations of the bodies of his ex-wife, Rena, and his pregnant ex-girlfriend, Ann McFall, from back in his caravan park days. He admitted to killing Rena, but claimed he hadn't killed Ann McFall. He just knew where her body was. Both bodies ended up being in a field in Muchmarkle, where he grew up, a place with which he was very familiar. But it turns out the body of Charmaine wouldn't be that hard to find after all. Police arrived at Fred's previous address, 25 Midland Road, with a search warrant for a wee bit of discreet digging and found Charmaine's skeletonized corpse beneath the floor.
0: My word.
1: Now, Fred was taking his fall pretty seriously, having confessed to all these murders and pointed out the locations of the bodies, but he insisted from the get-go on the innocence of his wife, Rose. Yeah, yeah, she was prostituting out of the house, but it was just to make ends meet and a bit of fun. It was Fred and Fred alone who was to blame for the carnage. Rose merely tried to please him as best she could, but she was completely unaware of all his infidelities and discretions and wholly ignorant of the depths of his perversions. Rose had been arrested, same as Fred, and was also awaiting trial, though. It was assumed that she had to have known something or been an accessory in some way, but the case against her was weak, especially with Fred being willing to take the rap and exonerate her. Yeah, why?
0: I mean, (laughs) I don't know why I care, but... Mm.
1: But now they had Charmaine's body along with a photograph taken of Charmaine's smiling face shortly before her death, and that's when everything went pear-shaped for Rose. A forensic dentist was able to calculate the time of her death based on the changes to her teeth between the date the photo was taken and when she was killed, giving them an accurate estimate of her date of death. When Charmaine was killed, Fred was in jail serving time for theft, and she was, along with her two sisters, under the care and protection of her 17-year-old stepmother, Rose. Mm -hmm. And time was not on Rose's side. Although it had taken decades, Caroline was ready to add her voice to the prosecution and tell the story once and for all of what she'd been through and assuage herself in some way of the survivor's guilt that plagued her. Other witnesses for the prosecution included Rose's mother, her sister, and her stepdaughter, Anne-Marie, also tenants of their bedsits, a woman who used to swing with them, and a woman who had been raped by the West in 1977 at the age of 14, who was there to testify that Rose was both the instigator and the more aggressive of the pair. When Rose and Fred arrived in court in June of 1994, it was the first time they'd seen one another since their arrests. Fred tried all he could to gain Rose's attention, but she would wince and move away, refusing to look at him throughout the proceeding. (laughs) She completely ghosted him at this hearing. God, after he was such a devoted little bitch to her. (laughs) And he fell the fuck apart. She had ignored his letters and the messages he'd asked the kids to deliver to her, and this was the most crushing betrayal to him. Fred claimed that of all the women Fuck you. Fred claimed of all the women that he'd been involved with, the love of his life was supposedly Ann McFall, the victim that he couldn't admit to killing. Her body was found with her eight-month-old unborn child beside her Ooh. body. She also had surgical tubing buried with her which casts a much darker light over that whole incident. It was said that he didn't entirely trust Rose and there was something about her that he feared. I don't know about any of that. I know that she sure as shit erased him that day in court. He never got over that. He went from taking total credit to insisting it was a 50-50 enterprise between the two of them. She'd been part of everything he now claimed, with the exception of Anne McFall's murder, which he blamed on Rena Costello, his first wife. The following is the text of a note that Fred wrote to Rose. Well, Rose, it's your birthday on 29 November 1994. You will be 41 and still beautiful and still lovely, and I love you. We will always be in love. The most wonderful thing in my life was when I met you. Our love is special to us. So, love, keep your promises to me. You know what they are. Where we are put together forever and ever is up to you. We loved Heather, both of us. I would love Charmaine to be with Heather and Rena. You will always be Mrs. West all over the world. That is important to me and to you. I haven't got you a present, but all I have is my life. I will give it to you, my darling. When you are ready, come to me. I will be waiting for you. Gross. Although he was on suicide watch, Fred managed to unalive himself on January 1st, 1995, with a short noose that he'd MacGyvered from bits and pieces. He looped it around his neck, tied the other end to the door handle, and strangled himself in that way. And the above note was discovered by his side. Jesus. So Rose was finally well and thoroughly fucked. (laughs) Finally. Initially, she was delusional enough to think that they would release her, and she was truly surprised to discover just how wrong she was. There were far too many witnesses against her. Her defense was weak. And Fred's exit put her directly in the crosshairs. Charged with ten murders and the subject of a ceaseless stream of sick child abuse allegations came rolling out of the closet as well, and she got steamrolled by her own mess. Fred had managed to slither his cowardly way out of this morass, but Rose was going nowhere. After a trial lasting seven weeks and being filled with all kinds of drama, including suicide attempts and actual suicides and stuff, the jury returned guilty verdicts for all ten murders. After dickling around with her sentence for a number of years, the whole... You should be locked up for life, but what do we really mean, life? What does that mean? How about 25 years? Is that life? Is Mm. that But eventually, in 1997, Home Secretary Jack Straw came along and slapped the dick out of everyone's mouth. He put the bitch away for life with no possibility of parole. And this was only the second time in the contemporary era that a woman in the UK was given such a sentence. The only other woman was Myra Henley. I don't think she uh, deserved it. Well, interestingly, at some point, Rose West was sent to the same prison block as Myra Henley. And when they met, they became friendly with one another. Both women had been shunned as child killers. They were regarded as creepy to a large extent. They became
0: best friends.
1: But they clicked with each other. Yeah, I
0: wonder why. At first,
1: they spent all of their free time in each other's company, and it was rumored they were having an affair, which wouldn't be surprising because Rose... Hadn't exactly been chased during her time behind bars. She was known for wooing women she was after by tempting them with food. She had won baking contests. And she was said to be a good cook. And also her hobby is knitting stuff for her grandkids. So apparently (laughs) she's still in contact with some of her kids. Um, I guess it's safe now that she's behind bars. In any event, Rose and Myra had a mysterious falling out. So they went from spending all their time together to not speaking at all. And years later, Rose ran afoul of Joanna Dennehy. You know who Joanna Dennehy is? She's another notorious murderess with a life sentence. You do know her he pleaded guilty to the, to the 2013 Peterborough Ditch Murders, which had resulted in three men being viciously stabbed to death by the mad cow. You remember her taking pictures of herself with this crazy-looking fucking knife? Uh, yeah. Yeah, she committed these murders with her boyfriend, and her plan was to murder a total of nine men so they could be just like Bonnie and Clyde, and she insisted oh, that yeah. the, their victims had to be men because she didn't want to kill a woman. Especially a woman who had kids, which is interesting to consider that detail, as Rose West required relocation to another prison for her own fucking safety when it was learned that Dennehy was due to be transferred to the same maximum security prison Well, they it was just innocent women. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, I guess so. Apparently it was, because Dennehy, having known that West was incarcerated there and that she was HBIC on the cell block, she promised to murder Rose. Authorities realizing she was exactly crazy enough to do it took the precaution of relocating the less troublesome Rose to a different facility. So Rose was particularly unhappy about the move because she'd made a cush life for herself in that particular prison had things set up to suit her and she had to say bye for that, that, all of that for her own safety. The house at 25 Cromwell Street, as you mentioned, was bulldozed along with the residence to which it was attached, and a pass-through park was created both as a memorial and as a cleansing space. Anne-Marie made special arrangements and was given special permission to have her mother, Rena, and her sister, Charmaine, interred together. This is something that is not usually permitted, but it was allowed due to the circumstances of their deaths. Barry West, another son of Rose and Fred, he had witnessed his sister Heather's murder through a crack in the wall when he was about seven, he heard his parents bring Heather downstairs, and when she came home that night, and he saw them beat and kick her until she stopped moving. But then he was told the next day that she left and moved to Torquay, and he was able to kind of block it out, telling himself he was probably wrong. But when it was confirmed, when his parents were arrested in connection with Heather's murder, the full effect of what he'd actually seen that night came flooding back to him, and that vision continued to haunt him throughout his life. Although he grew up, he couldn't free himself from the memories. And this led him to substance abuse and addiction. He fought against this. Unfortunately, he lost that fight in 2020. Mm-hmm. Another victim of frozen Fred. So I need to do this because this is important. So in addition to Ann McFall, Rena Costello, Charmaine West, and Heather West, who we've discussed at length, the other known victims of this disgusting pair of pervs were Linda Goff, a 19-year-old who had been living with them as a lodger on Cromwell Street. Carol Ann Cooper, a 15-year-old local girl who was abducted from a bus stop after going to the movies with her boyfriend. Lucy Partington, a 21-year-old student of sociology, also abducted from a bus stop. Therese Siegenthaler, a 21-year-old student from Switzerland who was hitchhiking her way from London to Ireland. Shirley Hubbard, 15, another local girl picked up from a bus stop by this harmless-looking couple. Juanita Mott, This 18-year-old had been a tenant in one of their bedsits for a while, but like Caroline, had moved out. She is believed to have been abducted while hitching a ride. Shirley Robinson, another tenant and girlfriend to both Fred and Rose, who was killed at 18 years old while very pregnant with Fred's child. Oh, my God. (sighs) And Allison Chambers, a 16-year-old girl who had run away from a halfway house and moved in with the West as their live-in sitter. Her body was found with a belt fastened around her skull going under her jaw and closing at the top of her head so she would not have been able to open her mouth. This girl, like all of these young women, was someone's daughter and a human being. One of the worst aspects of this case is the fact that these two began their killing in the early 1970s and were, it appears, prolific for a time. Their last known sex-motivated murder was that of Allison Chambers, which occurred in 1979. But why would they have stopped? Fred buried bodies in Much Markle when he lived in the area. He buried Charmaine under the house on Midland Road when he lived there. On Cromwell Street, he buried bodies under his cellar floor, and running out of space moved that enterprise to the back garden. But why would he have stopped? Rose worked from home, but Fred was a builder and worked at many job sites. He had plenty of opportunities to just bury bodies elsewhere. Experts who study killers like the West emphasize how unusual it is for serial murderers to just stop on their own with no outside intervention. Fred West hated the police with a passion his whole life. He wasn't going to give them anything unless it was going to end up netting him something that he wanted. Rose has kept quiet as a church mouse since her conviction, probably hoping the public will forget about her. It is suspected that the two committed many other murders that we will likely never know about. Fred was able to devise his own exit. Rose Letts West is still skulking around in prison, and provided she remains in good health, she'll be there for a long time. But somehow it doesn't seem like any amount of time could ever be enough to account for the damage done to so many lives. She's got to be hella old now. Why? It's not personal. Man. Yeah, it's like it's not personal. Yeah, I mean, well, I, that's what I'm saying. It's like I thought, like, okay, she's got to be old, right? Well, yeah, look at yeah.
0: I'm sure in
2: <coughs> prison you, the age. It's harder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a great story, a great depressing and gross story. Thank you, Khadijah. You yeah. know, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for thank listening. You.
1: Uh, sorry. <laughs> Just in time for the holiday seasons.
2: Just in time for the holiday season. Thank you everyone for listening. Family yeah, togetherness and. Make sure you hug your children tonight.
1: Not, uh, not that way.
2: In the appropriate manner. And, Hands
1: attended uh, to, people. Uh,
2: and until next time, you guys. Bye. Stay bent and twisted. Bye. Bye.